Hey friends. Um, so some time ago, I promised that I would release an episode about my, uh, my experience in transition at, uh, at Bayside. And, um, and so I've kind of been putting that on hold. I've been fear and trepidation about putting it out because I want it to be helpful. And I tell you the people that I think would help most is folks who have gone through transition, um, certainly pastors, leaders, um, and the second thing is I, Bayside is in such a different place now. I mean, we, it is such a positive winning culture uh, that I didn't want to go back and rehearse that pain, honestly. And um, But I, I do think there's value in it, and I hope it's, there's value in it. So this episode, and it's an extended episode, instead of releasing them individually, I just released them all together as one big episode. Um, so... I would, um, you know, if you want to hear the story, you know, it's, like I said, it's a longer episode. It's probably over an hour. Uh, I don't know the full run time, but probably hour, hour and a half. Um, it's divided into um, episodes that are about um, 10 minutes or so. Um, so there's definitely easy places to stop. Um, but so I just want to, as I, as I release this, again, still with a little bit of fear and trepidation. One, I just want to say, hey, Bayside is in a different place. I'm in a different place. And there's been a lot of healing and we are not where we were. And so um, this is, you know, now four or five years removed from um, from it. Um, so for four, you know, three or four years, we've been definitely in a harvest season and things are going great. And our staff is wonderful and the church is wonderful and healthy and all of that. So I just want to say that <laughs> before, <laughs> because if you've never been to Bayside, you hear this like, I'm never, I don't know. What well, it's not like that anymore. Thank God. Um, and, um, and the second thing is, I just want to say, you know, this is my story, you know, um, I, I don't, I don't claim that it's a perfect retelling of the details. I don't claim that, um, you know, that it's a, a, a hundred percent unbiased portrayal. It's my story, right? So it expresses the way I saw things, the way I felt, the way I walked through it. People who went through the similar season, um, may have different perspective and that's okay. And, you know, so I just want to say, I acknowledge that and, um, and, and just realize that it's from, it's from my, it's from where I sit. So, um, take that into account. Um, the, the, uh, the third thing is I would just say, you know, uh, I said, I, I will say in the episode, I recorded this several months ago. So, um, one of the things that I'll say at the beginning is that there's a, um, lessons I've learned, um, portion. Um, so like, if you didn't want to hear the story, just jump to the lessons I've learned. Well, I haven't recorded that one yet. I have the content, but I haven't recorded it. I'll release that later. So here's my, here's my caveat to that. If you don't want to hear the story, just skip this thing altogether. Cause this is mostly the story. This isn't a lot of lessons. Now there's some lessons I've learned along the way embedded in retelling the story. But if you just want a cliff notes version of lessons I've learned through, uh, transition, um, that's going to be in a separate episode. Um, but in here, I referred to skipping to that. Well, that isn't available yet. <laughs> so if you're looking, if you're looking for it, it's not there. Um, but I will um, record that and make that available. Just the you know 10, 15 important lessons I've learned. Uh, I learned through um, pastoral succession. So um, if you're familiar with the church and kind of how the process of the church goes and church transition. Um, 
pastoral transition uh, generally has a pretty dismal um, success rate. <laughs> and that dismal success rate, or you might say high failure rate, uh, just increases uh, depending on the tenure of the outgoing pastor. Um, so if the, if the pastor has been there, you know, 10, 20 years, 20 years, then the chances that the next guy coming in succeeds goes down. Uh, obviously, if the other guy's only been there two or three years, well, there's a good chance the next guys can succeed. So, um, so you know, if you're wondering, like, what, what is this pastoral succession deal? So when someone is following a long-term pastor, um, like I did, um, the failure rate's in the 90s, 90 percentage points. Um, I've, heard, I've heard people say it's, 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 in the, it's in the range of 97% failure rate for someone who follows a long-term pastor. So, um, so just give you some perspective on that journey and that process. It's a, it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, an arduous task. <laughs> and fortunately um, I made it through and could tell the story. And, and, and as I said, <clears throat> I'm on a really good side of that now. Um, but yeah, so it's something that I'm thinking about, you know, I've been here almost nine years now. So, you know, whenever the time comes for me to transition out, I want to make sure that that doesn't repeat itself. Um, because my heart, honestly, for telling this story is not, man, my heart is not, oh, feel sorry for Terry or, oh my goodness, that was awful. My heart is we've got to learn from these painful transitions, church. I'm talking to the church now. We have got to learn from these painful transitions and do it better. We've just got to do it better. Um, a lot of good, good people get hurt. A lot of good churches get destroyed. A lot of good pastors get smoked because this process is difficult and people don't realize how difficult it is and um, just try to write things off as good, bad, spiritual, unspiritual when there's a whole lot of gray in there that makes this transition time very difficult. And, um, and you need wise, patient, gracious, loving people to, um, to make it through it you know, or you just won't. So anyway, that's my heart. And so as you hear the story and it's kind of melancholy, as I tell the story, it's melancholy. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a lot of, you know, you know, um, a lot of, la there's not a lot of laughing and joking throughout the story. I mean, it's me kind of sitting across the table and telling the counselor <laughs> my story. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so as you, as you jump in, you'll, you'll find that kind of melancholy tone, um, so, you know, you, an hour at a time of just this melancholy, you may, may be too much. So you may want to break it up and uh, listen to it in a couple of different episodes. So, all right, you guys, um, I, I pray it is, it gives you some perspective, some encouragement, um, at least some, um, some understanding of that process. And um, I hope you enjoy it. And, uh, and as, I said, as I said, later on, I'll release the, uh, the lessons I've learned. Um, so if that's the part you really want, then just skip this thing altogether. I'll release that later. All right, guys. Love you guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to it. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hello. Welcome to this kind of special edition of the podcast. Um, I've been thinking a long time about uh, doing this and I've made a, several different attempts at trying to find a format and a medium to kind of share my story. A, a little bit, of, a little bit of history. Um, I've been a pastor at Bayside Church for, um, I guess, going on 
11 years, 10 years, 10 years, uh, 2012. This is time of this recording is 2021. So um, nine years, sorry, nine years. And it's been a transition. I've been a, I, I succeeded someone who had been here uh, many years and uh, that transition uh, was, was not easy. And uh, there were some lessons that I learned along the way. And uh, on coming out of that season, I really felt like it would be awesome to find a way to, to share the story. And uh, be, because I thought a, it was <laughs> therapeutic for me to share the story. Uh, but more importantly, I think it would have, I think it's, it could be helpful to people who are going through transition. So uh, sometimes we hear the end of the story and we hear the, you know, um, the positive results. We don't always hear the the struggle, how hard uh, sometimes things are. And so whether you're whether you're going through a, a transition, leadership transition or not, or whether you're just going through a difficult time, dark season, or you've gone through them before, I think we can relate. All, so many of us can relate to that and the lessons that we learn uh, through those dark seasons of life uh, are lessons that we maybe learn better than any other time in our life. And so, uh, so doing this, interestingly, it started off as, as a book. I was going to write it like a little short book and I don't know who, who really wants to read it. So, so I've written several things about this, uh, this season, um, essentially six or seven short chapters of the story. And so I'm going to likewise kind of present this in a series of podcasts, um, short 15 minute, 20 minute podcast that kind of tell the story. And so if you're not interested in the story, what I would suggest is just jump to the last episode. And that is the lessons I've learned. <laughs> if you're interested in the story, start at the beginning and follow it all the way through. But if you just want to know the, you just want to know the lessons that I've learned, and there are probably many more, um, then just jump to the final episode where I just recap uh, some of the lessons that I learned over these last uh, nine years, and particularly those first, first five years of, of uh, transition. And so, um, so that just kind of is set up for, for this, um, for this story, you know, it's, um, it's a story of, of my transition into, uh, the role of senior pastor here at Bayside and, um, the, the transition, um, that that caused. And, and honestly, the, the depth of self, um, examination I had to go to and, uh, to the levels of depression and, and, and just, um, uh, just some really dark seasons of not really knowing who I was or what I was called to do anymore. Um, and, and I'll be the first to say that, you know, through that season, I, I didn't do everything right. Um, this is not a story of, uh, of me being a victim. This is a story of just me trying to figure out, um, how to navigate it. And sometimes I, frankly, I didn't know how to navigate it. It was one step at a time. Uh, and you may be in a season, you know, maybe, maybe some of you who are found this, uh, podcast, you're in a season like that where you're, you're not really sure how to get, you're going to get through it. Uh, I hope it's a, I hope this will be a, a source of hope um, to go through, to keep walking one step at a time uh, and to look, look around um, at how God may be showing up in surprising ways to help you go another day, which is exactly what he did for me. Um, I can say uh, I'm sharing this story from the other side of it, from the mountaintop now, from the uh, the other side of the story. So it uh, makes it a little easier to, to tell <laughs> because I, I feel like it did have a positive outcome. Uh, but there were seasons where that was not a promise. You know, that was not a guarantee. That was 
uh, by a long shot was not a guarantee. And so it, it's a little easier to tell the story when you know that the the end result ended up very positive. But there were certainly days where uh, I thought it was going to end in very, very badly and painfully. So uh, you may you, you, you may not, depending on your relationship with the church, you may think, well, how could that stuff happen in the church? Well, it happens in anywhere, you know, and, and the more I the more I've uh, processed this now, um, transition is hard no matter where you are. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's true in your business and vocations. It's true if you're changing schools. It's true if you're uh, you're going from a house full of kids to an empty nester. Transition is hard. Uh, and leadership transition, organizational leadership um, and organizational transition is particularly difficult and has particular particular challenges. Um, there are some unique challenges related to uh, church transition, um, but um, and I'll, we'll talk some about that through this. But I just want to set this up, kind of tell you a little bit about where we're going with this. This uh, I did this first as a conference at a, a regional conference, and I, the title of the talk was how I survived succession, how I survived succession. Um, the subtitle was when the baton beats you up, <laughs> that, that baton of, you know, leadership trans, you know, the, the idea of we, in leadership, we pass the baton to the next leader. And sometimes that baton uh, is not passed so great. And, uh, and sometimes that baton beats you up and it's, it's hard and it's difficult. So, so yeah, so this came out of a conference that I, uh, a breakout, uh, session I did at a regional conference back in, I think 18, 2018, 2017, uh, called how I survived succession. And so, um, so that's a good bit of what, um, this will be. So in the next session, starting with the, the very next session, we'll talk about, uh, the beginning of the story, um, chapter one, uh, as it were, uh, which will take us back to probably, um, 20, uh, the year 2012. Uh, so, uh, so if you're interested, jump over to session or episode, uh, the next episode, if you are, don't want to really hear the story and you just want to hear the takeaways, jump to the last one. Thank you guys for checking it out. God bless. to the first chapter, as it were, of how I survived succession. Um, I guess this means you wanted to hear the story or you would have skipped on to the last episode. <laughs> as I said in the introduction, if you just want to hear the takeaways from this story, just jump to the last episode of this special session and you can grab the takeaways. But it uh, looks like you want to hear the story. So uh, so let me just start by, uh, by telling you the story, um, kind of the way I originally kind of tried to write it. I left the meeting spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically destroyed. I called my wife from the cafe at the church, and I could barely speak through the uncontrollable tears. It was as close to, and maybe it was, it was as close to an emotional breakdown as I'd ever experienced. After that meeting, I literally, and in that moment, talking to my wife, I didn't know who I was and what was true and what was a lie. And more severe, uh, I really didn't know who I was. Since all of my life, I thought I was relational. I thought I was at least a people person and um, somewhat gifted 
um, not by myself, but somewhat gifted as a communicator, a preacher. Um, but after those words from that meeting, which was populated by, at that time, uh, people I worked with, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I was good at any of those things. And I didn't really know if I ever was. I thought maybe I had been uh, under a delusion the whole time. And that was the pit. That was the pit I was in in the summer of 2015. But the descent to that low, incredibly low point in my life uh, all started, actually, some three years earlier with a letter. So back in 2012, so back three years before that, um, Christy, my wife Christy and I were in, and our children were in Ohio, Southwest Ohio, and I received a letter in the mail and uh, one Friday, I think it was, and I tossed the letter to my to my wife Christy and I said, I think this letter is from a church uh, that some folks that we knew from Virginia uh, had come from. Uh, they were a couple of the people that I referenced were a couple of key members of our congregation in Virginia. And so I said, I think this is the church that they come from, from Florida. They moved from Florida to Virginia to our church there. I said, this, I think this is the church that they're from. And so uh, Christy stood on the other side of the large granite island in our kitchen and uh, in the kitchen in the house that we had built just four uh, years earlier in Southwest Ohio. At that time, we had been in ministry long enough that uh, Christy knew what this letter was, what kind of letter this was. It was a letter from another church. And any letter from another church usually meant that that church was looking for a pastor. And that was the case with this one. The letter was from the pulpit committee, pulpit search committee of Bayside Community Church. And in so many words, they discovered my name from someone um, and they wanted to know if I'd be interested in a conversation about their open position, their senior pastor position that would soon be open. So go back a little bit further, a little of our story. Christy and I met in 1993 uh, when I was an undergraduate student at Anderson University in Indiana, and she was uh, a graduate, a recent graduate of Taylor University. And we met and were married um, 18 months later. After three years of in seminary, we accepted our first ministry assignment um, where I became the senior pastor of the First Church of God in Virginia Beach, uh, where we moved with our five-month-old and lived there in the Tidewater area of Virginia for 10 years. Um, so we, um, while we were in Virginia, we would add two more uh, people to the Roland family. And uh, so when our children were 10, 8, and 3, we loaded up from Virginia after having been there 10 years and moved to Southwest Ohio. The cultures of Virginia and Southwest Ohio could not be more different. Um, Virginia was a super transient community. Southwest Ohio, very tradition, traditional with deep roots. And so the letter arrived about the time I was starting to get used to eating Buckeyes at Christmas and rooting for the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> so we'd only been there for a little over uh, approaching four years. Then the letter comes. The letters of this kind, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say they came weekly or monthly, um, but they did come. And in our particular tribe of Christian denominations, uh, at that time, I had the prime credentials. Um, I was at the right age and family situation. I mean, middle age with a little bit of church experience with little kids still in the house, leading growing congregations. That was, you know, that was the peak of what a lot of churches wanted and do still want in their in their leader 
Well, anytime one of those letters would come, occasionally phone calls would come. I was always a little flattered, of course, um, because, you know, hey, it means that your ministry is being noticed. It means that people are interested in you. And so when I got the letter, I, of course, was flattered. But having only been in Ohio some 40 months, um, it, it just, it, it seemed um, soon. Um, and so, you know, these conversations usually don't go anywhere. And I kind of figured that this is, you know, this conversation is probably not going to go anywhere. We love the home that we had just built. Our, do- our daughters love the community. They love the youth group that they were in. Um, but as it turned out, we were going to Orlando. Just so happened, Christy and I were going to Orlando the next week. So what would a simple conversation hurt? You know, since we're going to be in Orlando for a conference, this church is in Tampa. Um, we never went to conferences together. <laughs> But on this one, we're going to do a little mini vacation, rent a a convertible and just kind of enjoy Florida. And so since we're going to be in the area, um, sure, we'll we'll have a conversation. So the representative that we talked to from the search team indicated that there was a packet of information about the church that um, that I could pick up. Uh, And so I was like, all right, well, since uh, my wife and I are going to be in Orlando, we'll swing by. We'll jump in the convertible and make the hour and a half trip over to Tampa and pick up the packet. I could swing by and pick it up and nothing else. It'll be a nice road trip in a Mustang and that we've already reserved in in Orlando. So Tuesday afternoon came. We loaded up the the convertible. turned out to be a yellow convertible and headed west towards Tampa to pick up the packet. When we arrived at the church, there was a meeting underway. It was evening, and then there was a meeting underway. What we didn't know was that <clears throat> Tuesdays uh, were the regular of the month. That particular Tuesday of the month was a regularly scheduled elders slash search team meeting. <laughs> so, so we drove up to the church, and instead of receiving a packet, <laughs> we were invited to an elders meeting, <laughs> where the outgoing, the uh, retiring senior pastor was present. So that was different. <laughs> it seemed natural enough, though. It was a, they seemed like very nice people. Uh, but more, more about that meeting in a moment. But, um, but, but just, just to step back a little bit and just kind of give you my perspective at that point. My, my first impression about the facility itself. Obviously, we didn't know the people of Bayside. We just knew the facility from just driving up. Um, the, the, the facility. Um, so when visiting in 2012, my first impression was that of a place that was um, honestly outdated, if I can be honest. The carpet, the walls, the bathrooms, the pews uh, kind of all harkened back to a time 20 years earlier when when grunge rock and the Gulf War were current. It was green, hunter green on the floor, mint green on the walls, some shade of green with an occasional accent of maroon everywhere. For a church that seemed, at least on paper and even by reputation, to have so much going on, honestly, we were both underwhelmed by the outdated and somewhat tired look of the facility. Um, I had learned enough from a de- about the, at that time, a decade and a half of ministry, uh, to not let paint color alone arrest the plan of God. <laughs> you know, it's about more than the color of paint so we kept walking we 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 know how this deal works though honestly after seeing the the worship space and um just the all the other things considered i really didn't think this was really going to go anywhere um 
So Chris and I arrived at the meeting and we were invited, as I said, invited to the up to the meet with the search team. And it was a casual meeting. They obviously had learned more about me than I had about them, which obviously that's what they were there for. The search team was to vet potential candidates. But the people seemed friendly. They were real, incredibly easy to talk with. We spent a few hours talking about everything from our family history to church philosophy, all the things one might expect church leaders and a potential new hire uh, to discuss. And after the meeting, honestly, I liked the people. They felt like us. That is to say, uh, you know, sometimes you just feel comfortable and at ease uh, right from the start talking with people. And for me, it was a bit strange uh, with the senior pastor present and all, but I felt very low pressure because, again, I wasn't looking for a job. Um, and since they had made the initiative to reach out to me, I felt um, no, I was not inhibited at all about being honest, forthright and conversational as were the others in the room. So it was a very easy conversation. Um, so I could share exactly what I thought about ministry, what I thought about my personality and my leadership style and uh, what, you know, how I approach uh, outreach and missions and all the things that are important to, um, to, to the church and to me personally. Um, so honestly, after, after that first encounter, after that first kind of, different meeting and Christy and I went to a local TGI Fridays to have dinner because we still hadn't eaten. <laughs> we went there, we we're going to pick up a packet and get something to eat. And we ended up going and going to a meeting. And so we still had, so we saw that a local TGI Fridays and kind of decompressed. And um, so while we felt good about the conversation after the meeting, I think maybe I would, if I would have said, you know, what's the percent chance you think this is going to go anywhere? I'd say maybe, 25%, maybe 20%, maybe there's a 20% chance that we, we make this actually works out and we come to Florida. Um, so, so despite the, this, this, despite how well the conversation went and the yucky carpet, I thought 20% was probably about it. Uh, so it, it was a very interesting first. And by the way, still waiting for that packet, by the way, I still have yet to see the packet. Um, and let me say something too, kind of the conclusion of this uh, kind of first session about church carpet. You know, interestingly, church carpet has a, has a storied history in the church. <laughs> it's, you know, churches have split over the color of a carpet. Pastors have been fired. Deacons have been punched. Contractors have been called heretics all over the color of the carpet. Innocent church going people have been destroyed in wars over church carpet. Why? As with most issues, I think in the church, it's rarely, the issue is rarely the issue. The issue in, is almost always about power. So carpet isn't the issue. The issue is about power. Carpet for many represents a continuation with the past. That's familiar. Carpet creates an atmosphere that for members of the church, it feels comfortable and familiar. It's precisely this familiarity that church folk like. Well, shoot, that we all like. We like familiarity. The problem, of course, is that while familiar is great for insiders, familiar, if not kept current, can create an environment that feels frozen in a bygone time to newcomers. So while it feels familiar to those who were raised around it, it's just like the just like the the uh, the picture in your foyer. You don't even probably notice the pictures anymore in the foyer of your of your home unless you're someone who you know changes them regularly. You probably don't even notice them anymore. But a visitor will notice them right away. It's the first thing they will notice. 
And so likewise in the church, we get used to our surroundings. We even, even get used to our carpet and our, the way, the way things look. And to us, it's just, it's just the way it is. But to a newcomer, it's the first thing we notice. And if we don't keep quote familiar end quote, um, current, it can be, it can lock us in a bygone time. And so that's what's happened with church carpet. So when I saw the green carpet, uh, it, sh- it, it should have, it should have spoken volumes to me. Um, it said that this place is very comfortable to insiders. The church place a, a great value on insiders. Uh, and you might argue, I didn't pick this up at the time, but maybe even um, a greater value to the comfort of insiders over the first impression of the visitor. So we left that day interested, but to this day, I have not seen the packet. And after eight years, I doubt maybe there was ever a packet <laughs> or maybe it was just, maybe, maybe it was just an intended packet. Uh, maybe the meeting substituted for the packet, but that's how it all began. And it gets a lot more interesting from there. God bless you. first few months. The next few months honestly were a blur. The conversations with Bayside leaders became more frequent and eventually became increasingly obvious that this move was likely actually going to happen. Some may wonder how this call from another church happens. Those not in the pastorate or even acquainted with church life may wonder, how does this exactly happen? Was there like an audible voice from God? Did I retreat into the wilderness for 40 days and fast and pray in solitude? Well, no. Of course, fasting and prayer were certainly an integral part of the journey for sure. There was no trip to the wilderness, and there certainly was not an audible voice from God. For me, rather than hearing a voice and knowing with certainty from the beginning, I approached it with the kind of the philosophy of keep walking until you see a red flag or until you get a hard no, just keep walking step by step. So as I was praying and moving forward, I do believe God still speaks to us and, and gives us insight, but more often than not, I believe God confirms his purposes through his word, the Bible, through godly counsel of friends and through our own God-given ability to reason and to weigh pros and cons and to consider uh, the options. So my, con- my decision to continue walking was led by prayer and a God-inspired reason uh, to seek, keep seeking the mind of Christ. I never had a dramatic, undeniable voice that said, you must go to Bayside. <laughs> but I didn't have a door closed either. Just a sense that God kept opening the way. So as the way kept opening, I kept walking. To be honest, one of the reasons I was open to the move was that over the years, Christy and I had discussed whether we thought our ministry in Ohio would be long-term. And honestly, neither one of us felt really that it would be. I felt like I had been sent to the church in Ohio for a set purpose and a set season. And 
while I didn't know how long that season was exactly, uh, when the letter from the search team of the church in Florida arrived, I was entering a season of fruitfulness and I was becoming content. But deep down, I always knew that Southwest Ohio probably was not my final ministry assignment. I also didn't want to be the kind of pastor that jumped around from church to church every three or four years, which unfortunately, historically, is has been the case. So in our discussions, we were like, if ever we were to move from Ohio, which we believed eventually we would, it would need to be a place where we could see ourselves being for a long time, where we could be for a decade or more. Bayside, when we got this letter and from the little research that we could do online, it seemed to be that kind of place. It seemed to be a great opportunity to put roots down and serve for a long time. This wasn't only important for Christy and me, but especially important for our three children, who at the time were 14, 12, and 7. So as the conversation and movement toward Florida heated up, the effect on the children was naturally a big concern. And none of them honestly wanted to move. They loved Ohio. They loved our church there. Helping them to warm up to the idea would require somehow allowing them to see the new church firsthand. We thought maybe if they see it themselves, it'll uh, you know, ignite some excitement to an interest in wanting to go, make that transition for, for them a little easier. So as the search process continued, I requested of the search team that our, our family be allowed to come down in a kind of incognito visit kind of under the radar, just to kind of check it out, uh, be with the family. The church was large enough where we could do that without, you know, most people knowing who we were. Since most of the congregation didn't know who we were, we just wanted to come on a Sunday and see if this was the kind of church we felt like we would fit in. Up to that point, we had just had the one meeting uh, together with the search team. Um, I had come and met with the search team by myself, but the family really, we never saw the church in action, so to speak. And so we wanted to come and see on a Sunday what it looked like, what it felt like. And I wanted to see if this was the kind of place I could see myself pastoring. Was Bayside the church kind of church I would attend if I weren't being hired as the pastor? Always a great question. Would I attend this church if I weren't being hired to be the pastor? So in the spring of 2012, after many phone conversations and written statements of beliefs and philosophy and ongoing conversation, I was invited to come down with my family for a, quote, no strings attached, unquote, visit. It's hard to recall all that we experienced on that first visit. I recall the church being busy with lots of people. We intentionally arrived after the service had started so as not to draw attention to ourselves. The parking lot was full. The lobby was empty except for a greeter. She was an older lady who had a look in her eye like she knew who we were. The sanctuary was full. As I sat in the sanctuary, the green was hardly noticeable because of the dim lighting. The decorations on the stage stage were certainly dated. Lots, lots of ivy. <laughs> the music was professionally done with horns and a full band. It had a definite jazz flair to it. Though a dated worship style, it was performed exceptionally well, and the overall sound quality in the room was, I thought, outstanding. The production was sharp. The sound was full. The band was polished with horn riffs dominating the attention. I could see right away why some of the younger members were balking at it, and I could see why the baby boomers loved it. (laughs) The preaching was good. 
I didn't think exceptional, <laughs> but good. It was topical, biblically light preaching, at least on that Sunday. Again, it was a style that was tended to be very effective for baby boomers, but left something to be desired for those who perhaps were hungry for biblical depth that might come through something like expository preaching or uh, verse by verse preaching of the Bible. And by the attendance that day, it was clearly appealing to hundreds of people. When our kids returned from the children's and student ministry areas, we were curious to get their impressions. You know, what did you think? How did it go? Are you still hate it? The idea? You should know that on the way to church that morning, our oldest cried an entire box of Kleenex. Literally, an entire box. So we knew she was having a hard time with the thought of leaving Ohio and her close friends in the youth group. We were preparing for the worst when they came back from the student ministry areas. So we were stunned to find both of our girls smiling, having had a great experience. Both students and children's ministry honestly were top-notch, fun, engaging, spiritually uplifting. After our incognito visit, if I were to give our experience a report card, I probably would have been something like this. Worship, B. Preaching, C plus student ministry A children's ministry A plus worship facility D minus. <laughs> I said yes. Christy and I discussed among ourselves and then with our children the pros and cons. We described them described to them the opportunity to go to a place where we could see ourselves being for a long time, and how this seemed like a great fit for my gifts and my calling. More about that in a moment. The kids were troopers in handling such a life-changing decision. While they seemed to accept it, what choice did they have, really? It, if we would have polled the Roland kids, I'm not sure we would have had enough to make the move. Again, their hearts were still in Ohio. Things began moving at lightning speed after our incognito visit. What, had, what at one time had been done in secret now began to be public. Before the incognito visit, I had given the elders of the church in Ohio a heads up about the conversation that was going on. We agreed to keep it quiet until a decision was made to move forward with the call to Florida. So when I returned from Florida, I, my first phone call was to the elders to let them know that I was going to accept the call to Bayside. This was very difficult and a very painful decision. Which I think is a good time to talk about how weird pastoral changes are and transitions are. They're just weird. It's very weird dynamic. The best analogy, and I know it sound, may even sound crude and weird, but the best analogy for that transition when you're at one church but talking to another church, it feels like you're having an affair. It feels like you're cheating. Not that I've ever had one, but this must be what it feels like. It feels dishonest. It feels shady having private conversations and being courted by another church. It feels it feels very strange. And usually you're being you're being courted by a quote more attractive church. <laughs> so it feels like dumping the woman you're with for another woman. It's again, okay, I, I just weird. It's weird. It always made me feel very uncomfortable and, and somewhat dirty and unclean and guilty. Like most people, I found the hardest part of the process next to the pain of the transition on our kids was to was the way it made the church where you're leaving feel. A 
abandoning abandoning relationships, leaving team team members who went through battles with you, church friends who've you've prayed with, cried with, rejoiced with in some of the most intense moments of life, walking away. Walking away honestly from dreams and visions that you had for that place and its future. While the new church thinks you're wonderful and great and they or they wouldn't be wooing the the folks who know you better. The old church know your strengths, but they also know your weaknesses. You might say the wife knows you better than the girlfriend. (laughs) But the whole calling interview process is about putting your best foot forward, highlighting your strengths, downplaying your weaknesses. For those who preach authenticity and relationships, the process is all very disorienting, quite, quite honestly exhausting. And then you have to tell the church where you're, that you're at, that you're leaving. But what is weird is that by the time the wife is notified, you've already betrothed the new woman. So they naturally think, how long has this been going on? Reality sets in, in that week after week, you've been in the arms of another. And you try to tell them, yes, but it's not what you think. <laughs> uh, it's a very weird process. What some of Bayside was looking for. Back to Bayside. I say what some of Bayside was looking for because my perspective of Bayside was primarily informed by the leaders. I interfaced with them, the search team, the elders, the state ministers, the staff people. So what I gleaned from them was what they, not necessarily the rest of the congregation, was looking for. I would later discover this was a big, big gap. They shared with me what they thought the church needed and the kind of vision that they thought the church needed for the future. What I did not necessarily hear, nor was wise enough to ask, was what is the church at large looking for? Honestly, the church at large wasn't looking for anything (laughs) other than a suitable replacement for their beloved outgoing pastor. And by suitable, I would come to define that as similar, a similar but younger personality. In the process of our discussions, or you might say courtship, as I said, since I really wasn't looking for a new job, I felt comfortable being forthright and honest from the start. Since I had been in ministry for well over a decade at that point, I was beginning to know myself a little better at least. And I knew that knew when I was at my best and had discovered what some of my blind spots were as a leader as well. Like my tendency to wrongly assume that if People's heads are moving up and down. They are agreeing with me. I learned later that doesn't necessarily mean they're agreeing with me. That just means they hear me. I learned that sometimes this only means that they acknowledge what I'm saying. It doesn't mean they're agreeing. I often would assume that meant buy-in before I truly had it. And that was a blind spot. It caused me to be surprised, even hurt, when people weren't fully on board with a new, new initiative I had started or that we had started. Because again, I thought you were nodding with me. So I'd learned some things about myself, my strengths, my weaknesses. So when I came to Bayside and they began to tell me what they were looking for, I, I was aware of how I might be able to help and why, how, where in the areas I may not, might not be able to help. Bayside had been well-led for 14 years by the same pastor. When this the previous pastor, we'll just call him LT, was promoted... When the congregation was much smaller, from an associate pastor to senior pastor, when he was in his early 50s. 
He was an exceptionally relational and consensus-building leader. He led through crucial relationships and through slow incremental change. He had grown up a pastor's kids himself, so he knew church people. And because of some of previous experience in business, had a knack with connecting, particularly with people of affluence and money. As he approached retirement, the church looked back on nearly two decades of success. The church grew in the first seven years of his ministry from 200 to nearly 800. The last seven years saw growth, but granted at a slower rate. The church grew by 600 in the first seven years and 150 in the second seven years. The church was incredibly stable with associate staff serving for practically the entire time the senior pastor had been here. This gave the church strength in leadership and relationships, but it also made transition difficult. And most folks on Sunday morning felt the church was an example of church success. And to many people it was, and in many ways it was. So when the search team spoke to me, they talked about a church that had a strong staff, was financially strong, had a superior student and children's ministry, all of which I found to be true. Through surveys and studies during the pastoral search, they also discovered that they had become primarily an inwardly focused church. This was a journey they took on their own. This was a journey I was not part of, but what they had discovered on their own as part of preparing for the search for a new pastor was discovering what their strengths and weaknesses were. And one of those weaknesses or concerns or areas to address was that they'd become over time primarily an inwardly focused church. That is, they would describe the church as friendly and warm, like a family to those inside. Some would say it was a country club. So for all its material and people resources, there, there was a concern about the lack of outward focus in the church. So when they began the search, they felt like the next leader needed to be a missional leader. That is a pastor with evangelism, with a heart for evangelism and the ability to mobilize the church toward the needs of the surrounding community. He or she would need to be a strong communicator who could bring biblical depth to the congregation. All of these were things I thought were in my wheelhouse, which is what caused me to be so intrigued initially with the conversation, the potential of leading Bayside Church. In fact, I remember in one of my meetings with the search team telling them that if they were looking for a leader to just come and man the wheel of this successful church, I was not the guy. Because my natural bent is towards progress and change with an eye always on the outsider. And that that would make a bad arrangement if they just wanted someone to continue what had always been done. But I expressed, if they were looking for someone who was seeking ways to steer the ship toward the community, toward those without Christ, then I might very well be their guy. While some were concerned with the change, that is, some of the search team were concerned with the change and staff, and perhaps some concerned about disrupting the large senior adult community within the church, it seemed that the vast majority of the search team was vehement that Bayside needed change. It could not continue in the same way, their words, as a country, as the country club it had become. Their words, not mine. The search team wanted a leader who could lead the congregation to become more missional, diverse, not so white and evangelical. What Bayside was looking for seemed to match nicely with my default passions and gifts. Notifying and moving. There was pressure from Bayside to move quickly. They wanted to have a, as seamless a transition as possible between the outgoing and the incoming pastor. This turned out to be a terrible mistake. 
conventional wisdom says that in church transition, a good rule of thumb is to have an interim pastor serve one month for every year that the outgoing pastor served the church. So if the previous pastor in this case served for 17 years, you should have 17 months of an interim pastor before you hire the next pastor. This provides adequate time for the church to mourn the loss of the old leader and to discover who they are and then what they need really in the next leader and in the next chapter of their church. The time that between the outgoing pastor, the retiring pastor, and my first Sunday was a grand total of six weeks. This created so much misdirected misdirected grief and pain and is one of the handful of major mistakes made during this pastoral transition. And everyone had good intentions. No one did it intentionally. But looking back, it was one of the biggest mistakes. Why do we do that? I think churches and church leaders and pastors are generally naive. We think because we love God and because a person is called and because the call is confirmed, then we can avoid the predictable tra- trajectory of transition. We often, at a, sometimes at a fault, are too optimistic. This causes us to overlook serious red flags and realities that exist during seasons of change. Pastoral change is a very traumatic experience to a congregation. And in the end, not giving adequate time to mourn and refocus only complicates and in fact prolongs an already difficult adventure, namely transition, the move. In the summer of 2012, we left Ohio with a lot of hopes and dreams. Bayside seemed like a church and an assignment that seemed to seem like a perfect fit. I began in August of 2012, and at, at first, things seemed stable. My immediate interactions with leadership and the challenges would be to first gain the trust and respect of the staff. That was my first objective. This was going to be a monumental task, since most of the staff had been there more than a decade, and it had a lot of allegiance to the former pastor, naturally. To further complicate matters, I would find out later that several of the key staff were not altogether pleased with the search process at all. That had led to me being hired, something I did not even know about. The objection was not necessarily with me per se, but with the staff's perceived lack of involvement in the process, that they were not engaged more in the search process. There was excitement, but there was quite a lot of anxiousness as well among the staff, which is typical since everyone is wondering if their new boss's vision will include them. I was told that the staff was incredible, and while technically I was their boss, they would there would be no real need to change up the team very much at all. Honestly, the first several months were strange. It was like preaching to a, on Sunday mornings even. It was like preaching to a room full of strangers each week. Over time, the faces became names, and the environment changed. There, be, there develops relationships. The sheep know the shepherd's familiar voice. It's a real thing. At first, it was awkward for me, and I'm sure it was very awkward for congregation members. But slowly over time, I began to know the faces and know a little bit of the stories, and they began to know me. So over those first few months, besides updating the website, worship folder and a few upgrades in the church lobby, very little changed that first year. The biggest change was me. People were attempting to get used to me, the younger pastor from the outside that was now leading their church. That alone 
that alone caused some to think, who stole my church? What I didn't know was that this first year would be the best of the next five. It was going to go down and go down rapidly. Chapter 3, Bad Fire One constant source of chatter that filled my ear when I came to Bayside was that a change was needed in worship. Not uncommon, seems like every church that's had any kind of history starts to feel like its worship, worship can get stale. But the worship ministry had grown stale, and that's, I guess, somewhat predictable. And it had been kind of locked in a bygone style. That's what everyone kept saying anyway. Whether that was true or not, it was really too early for me to tell and to have an informed opinion. So I tried to withhold judgment. But it was obvious to me that a segment of the congregation had grown extremely weary of what they would describe as a, quote, performance-oriented Sunday morning production. They were pressing to to exchange packaged performance for a worship experience that felt more authentic. Over the first year, the dissonance grew month by month, and more and more people were ready to see change on Sunday morning. Over the summer of 2013, heat grew more intense among leadership that our worship change needed to happen. This meant letting the worship pastor go. Nothing against him or his talents. It was just time for a new season. And over the year, I sensed that the worship pastor was indeed perhaps tired and the ministry was somewhat on autopilot. Innovation, interestingly enough, early on, the staff took an inventory of values and innovation scored dead last out of a list of about 25. So after 14 months, I too began to feel that a change in worship was needed. It's interesting because looking back, everyone thinks that it was a quick change in worship. And actually, it was over a year. (laughs) It was 14 months. And while we all agreed a change was needed, the timing would be critical. And more critical than timing would be executing what would be an extremely volatile departure under any circumstances. So in a Tuesday evening meeting in September of 2013, by the unanimous vote of the elders, the decision was made to release the worship pastor, a position that he had held for 14 years. The match had been lit. Looking back, I can say without hesitation, this was the single biggest mistake I've made in ministry. It went bad. It went bad in every possible way. I may not be an expert who can tell you the right way to let a pastoral employee go, but I can tell you confidently from an experience of a hundred different things of not what of what not to do of a bad way to do it. Because we did so many things wrong. Well intended, but wrong. 
The biggest mistake of all was giving the wounded pastor a microphone to speak to the congregation on his last Sunday. That was bad. Real bad. We would end up losing a lot of people because of that heart decision. And it was foolish. And it was an incredibly polarizing event. When I say we lost a lot of people, I think we lost about 70 people immediately. And over the next two years, people who tried to, even people who tried to gut it out, could never really get over the painful departure of that worship pastor. It hurt a lot of people. The next Sunday, after I stood up before the church and apologized for the hurt I'd caused, it was a shocking and deeply painful moment for the church that I felt responsible for. Some forgave me, some tried, and others just could not let it go. And I understand, because the way it was allowed to go down wasn't fair to anyone. It's important to note that Bayside had never fired, downsized, or retired a pastor before. At least not in the recent history of 25 years. (laughs) And in a period of two years, they had retired one pastor, the senior pastor, and we had just dismissed the worship pastor. So this dismissal was jarring to a congregational system that had been fairly stable for a decade and a half. No one, including myself, fully accounted for how traumatic this would turn out to be. I spent probably the next three years trying to regain leadership trust that I lost in that one critical decision. Honestly, for someone who really wants to be liked, this was demoralizing. I never did regain the trust of some folks. Honestly, many times over the next few years, I didn't think I'd make it through. Things got bad. They got worse. But the match was lit on that October day. The fall of 2013 began one of the most intense, painful, confusing, and dark seasons of my life. It would be the beginning of a three-year season that would take me to the lowest point. It was the perfect storm. Declining church income, organizational chaos, personal crisis, rogue leaders, and dysfunctional leadership. In the late summer of 2013, we as an elder board decided to transition the worship pastor. And transition is the church word we use for fire. It was decided that I and another elder would meet with the worship pastor and break the news to him. It was told that his position would be terminated at the end of the year and he would receive a generous, at least fair, severance. He chose instead to leave immediately after the week's worship service, at which time we allowed him to say a few words again to the church, which, as I mentioned earlier, was a big B-I-G mistake. It was a huge person to give. It was a huge mistake to give a wounded person a microphone. The congregation had no idea what was coming. And that singular event caused more collateral damage than any of us could have anticipated. Now, it seems naive and foolish. But at the time, we thought it was an act of respect to give him a chance to address the church that he'd served for 14 years. But leadership-wise, it was a terrible decision. And it did nothing to help him. It damaged the church and it hurt everyone in leadership. 
I've said often that if I could do, have one decision back from my early days at Bayside, it would be the decision to let the worship pastor go. Not that the change wasn't necessary. I think it was. But the carrying out of that decision and the timing of it could not have been worse. People left that morning from church hurt, enraged, confused, and damaged. We lost so many people right away, and it continued to leak for the next year and a half. If I could do it over, I wouldn't have done it at all like what it was done. I would have done it much more gradual and transitioned it out much slower. For me as a senior leader, that decision cost me irreplaceable trust and credibility with the staff and with long-term members of the congregation. Terminating the worship pastor injected fear into the whole staff so that all existing staff began to wonder if they were next. Not good. Many long-standing members, having experienced the pain and mishandling of this decision, lost confidence in mine and our elders' leadership. It did not help that some of our elder board began to waffle and divide under the immense pressure from the backlash of this decision. Within months, the elder vice chair was having secret meetings to get me fired, something that I didn't even know was happening until later. The firestorm had begun. The bad fire turned into a big fire storm. Chapter 4, House Fire. In August of 2013, as I was about to enter the firestorm at Bayside, to add to the job-like scenario, we also had a literal fire. Just two days before the start of school, at 1.30 a.m., a strong thunderstorm came through the Tampa area, and lightning struck an exhaust fan that vented on the roof. As I was startled out of bed and got up to see what was the damage and to check on the kids, I went up to see our older daughter in our in her room. She was upstairs and she was the last one for me to check on. I checked on the two early, younger kids first and then went upstairs to see if she was okay. When I went upstairs, the strong odor of burning wires met me. I figured a television or some other electrical component had been fried by the lightning strike. But the odor kept getting stronger, so we called the fire department. We evacuated all the kids and moved the cars out onto the road. It was pouring outside. So we loaded the three kids, wife and our dog, in our SUV and we waited it out. Before long, our small cul-de-sac was lined with fire rescue units. Firemen climbed on the roof and began cutting holes in the roof to let the smoke out. They battled the smoldering fire for better for the better part of four hours. Finally, around 5 a.m., we were allowed to go back into the house where we could see for ourselves the extent of the damage. The damage seemed insignificant but I really had no idea how true, truly bad it was. 
Honestly, we were still in a bit of shock. We left the house with a few personal items and spent the rest of the night at a friend's house. The popsicle story. In the middle of the chaos, as we were evacuating the house, a young college student who lived across the street offered to help. It was chaos. Firemen running in and out of the house, torrential downpour, kids frantic, dogs and uh, kids in the car. And this young man who had been up late playing video games clearly had heard the lightning strike. It probably ruined his game. When we ran outside, he, outside, he ran outside too and offered to help. Do you need anything? He offered. Do you need anything to eat? Is there anything I can do? I've got popsicles. <laughs> that was one of the strangest things I'd ever heard. Here we are in the middle of a personal catastrophe and he offers us popsicles? Really? I shook it off and shook him off with a no thanks. I went to the SUV later on where my family was hunkered down crying and fearing the worst. Periodically, I'd check on them throughout the night to make sure they were okay. After about two hours in, I went to check on them and when I opened the door to the car, I looked around and every one of them had a different colored popsicle in their mouths. I busted out laughing. I learned an important lesson from that college kid. Being a good neighbor doesn't mean being a, a savior. Usually you can't solve other people's problems. You can't save their homes from fire. You can't even take away their pain. But you simply offer what you have, even if it's popsicles. And sometimes that's exactly what's needed. Chapter 5. Bad Hire It's not change that usually destroys the leader. It's the transition. I can say it almost destroyed me. The deliberation required to make a change in worship wasn't necessarily easy. We deliberated long and hard about it. However, the carrying out of the change was relatively easy. You call for a vote. You set up a meeting to have the exit conversation. You do all the necessary paperwork, and the, quote, change, unquote, has been made. But managing the impact of that change is where the real trial and test of leadership truly begins. And this transition at Bayside would be worse than I could have ever imagined. As previously stated, several people left the church with worship pastor one, we'll call him, over the next several months, many more would leave as we prepared them for the arrival of the new worship pastor, worship pastor two. Looking back, I see that the culture of the church had become toxic. By the winter of 2014, everyone, staff included, were angry, hurt, confused. The poisonous soup of emotions boiled over into division, alliance building, and falsehoods. 
In the midst of this unhealthy environment, we brought in a young, gifted, creative arts pastor to lead our worship arts department. Our relationship, mine and worship pastor too, would become a David and Absalom situation. You see, in the Bible, there was a season when King David was a badgered monarch. David's son, Absalom, built support for himself by speaking to those who'd come to King David for justice, saying, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no one deputed by the king to hear you. If only I were the judge of the land, then all who had a suit or cause might come to me, and I would give them justice. Basically, Absalom leveraged the discouragement of the people to gain power for himself. It worked for a while. Like David, I was badgered. Like Absalom, this young, talented worship pastor too, leveraged the discouragement of a tired people to gain popularity for himself. And it worked for a while. As a creative arts pastor, this new hire was in charge of leading worship, but it was also the head of our video and graphic design production, something we desperately needed since much of the look and feel of Bayside was outdated. I knew Worship Pastor too from a different state. We had served together at a previous church. And since that time, he'd been serving for some years at a larger church in the West. He began there as a youth pastor and began and moved up to Worship Pastor. One day I received an email from him asking if I'd be a reference for his resume. He was looking to move out of the West and get closer to family. It seemed to me through our many phone conversations that he had matured and grown as a leader and a person. As his interest in coming to Bayside increased, my hope was that Worship Pastor 2 would be a strong ally in a turbulent season of transition, a partner with whom I could work to stabilize and eventually lead Bayside to greater health. Worship Pastor 2 is an incredibly gifted and talented guy that I think tries to serve God. He's extremely creative, hardworking. He was a guy with the it factor. You know, those rare personalities that just have natural charisma and seem to gain followers effortlessly. He's a guy that younger people especially look up to and admire. Absalom. For several reasons, Worship Pastor 2 looked like the A player we needed. The one we needed to, that would help us recover from the losses we'd experienced, we'd experienced and to start a new vision in a new season. I was wrong. Oh, he certainly added value to our marketing and online presence, and he contemporized our worship services. But what I would later learn is that shortly after arriving in Florida, Worship Pastor 2 began having conversations with other staff and board members that were seriously undermining my leadership. I truly believe he was looking for my position. He began building alliances with other staff members, fueling anger and hostility towards me. It was awful. I wasn't helping anything either, since as the church's attendance and finances continued to decline, my self-esteem plummeted with it. Most days, I felt like a complete failure. Board members left, search team members left, big donors left, morale left. In the Bible, a place like that was once called Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. 
I felt like I was pastoring Ichabod. During that season, I hated my job. I hated the job I was doing. My only refuge was preaching. The one hour in the week where I felt close to God and felt good about something. But even that was beginning to be criticized and demeaned. Ironically, all of this culminated on All-Star Weekend. In the summer of 2014, my son was playing on a 9- and 10-year-old All-Star team. We went into the postseason with little expectation other than being competitive and having fun with some great families in our community. As it turned out, our team was pretty good. We won district, we won our regionals, we went to state. It was July, and since this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience with my son, it was too good to pass up. I asked the elders if I could have the weekend of the state's tournament off to go see my son play in Fort Myers. They allowed, and one of the preaching elders agreed to fill in for me preaching. Now, before I left to go to All-Star Weekend, Worship Pastor 2 was in hot water with the elders. He was always in hot water, particularly over the worship style, which I really appreciated his style but they were tired of getting heat from folks who were disgruntled with the worship. I spent a lot of my time trying to back them off of him. But on this particular weekend, they wanted to have a conversation with him. So one of the elders who was preaching for me was planning to meet with him to discuss the corrections the elders would like to see. And for what I'd been told, that conversation had gone well, and we were on our way to correcting those worship concerns, particularly musical concerns. What I did not know was that over the weekend of states, all hell broke loose at Bayside. There's no way to describe it other than it was a complete uprising. There were private meetings with staff and elders without my knowledge. The fuel of all that had Worship Pastor 2 at the center. When I arrived Monday morning from the tournament, I was ambushed by two elders who met me at the church. My heart raced. I was confused. They told me the staff had met and there were serious concerns with me. I had no, literally no idea what they were talking about. I was completely blindsided. I was stunned. The next few days were honestly a blur. When I think back to that season, I still feel it deep in my gut, like a feeling of dread, sadness, confusion. The feeling you get just before you pass out. One event is seared in my memory forever. It was a Wednesday morning and two other elders convened a meeting with the staff during office hours. I was invited into a big circle of fellow staff members, employees of the church. They each in turn criticized and expressed their rehearsed concerns with me. The way I heard that conversation was, you're not a good leader. You're not good with people. You're not a good preacher. You've hurt all of us. Worship Pastor 2's words were the most calculated and those that stung the most since he was clearly the ringleader and someone I'd mistakenly, foolishly, thought was a friend and ally. I was wrong. He said, in effect, "You you might be a good pastor somewhere just not at Bayside. I left that meeting spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically destroyed. 
I called my wife and I could barely speak through the uncontrollable tears. It was as close to an emotional breakdown as I'd ever experienced. After that meeting, I no longer knew what was real and what was a lie. And more severe was I didn't even know who I was anymore. Since all my life, I thought I was a relational person. I thought I was good with people. Of all things, I thought I was a decent communicator and preacher. But after those words from the staff, I wasn't sure I was good at that either. And not sure I really ever was. Manna from heaven. I didn't know what to do or where to go, but I remembered back to a pastor's monthly luncheon I had attended. There, I had met a Christian counselor. I think he was the only one in the room, the only Christian counselor in the room. Brad and I ended up sitting next to each other for the lunch, and we hit it off. And before I departed, he handed me his contact information in case anyone I ever, in, in case anyone I knew ever needed it. Little did I know that that someone would turn out to be me. So I dug through the phone contacts and I found Brad's name and asked him if we could meet. And over several meetings, he listened to me and helped me to decipher the truth from the lies. I will always feel like God had sent him in my path like manna from heaven. I prayed for an answer and God sent me a friend. God sent Brad. At the church, had they had the votes, the board probably would have fired me. There was certainly a passionate minority that thought running me off was the answer, the only answer. But in God's sovereignty, it never happened. People spoke up and stood up for me when I needed it most, when I had no voice and very little confidence. The gratitude I have for those folks brings tears to my eyes, and it's very hard to describe. How do you express gratitude for a person who dives in the turbulent water to save you because you're too tired and too defeated to swim. Many people did that for me. Over the next several months, staff culture grew worse until eventually one by one for different reasons, the entire staff turned over. Worship Pastor 2 chose to plant a church in a neighboring county and took a handful of people with him. When he left, the culture began to improve immediately. Two big things contributed to that. Critical board members and toxic staff members left. After that, things began to trend in a more positive direction. First morale, then finances, then slowly attendance stabilized. But it wasn't quite over yet. The board meeting. In the autumn of 2015, through prayer, journaling, and lunches with Brad, I began to find peace in my own heart. I no longer felt the need to cling to the church, but really felt like I just needed to let it go. If the church succeeded with me, fine. If my resignation was needed, fine. If I needed to move on, fine. After many months of anguish, I wrote in my journal, quote, my value to God doesn't rest on the success of Bayside Church, end quote. When I wrote those words, I looked back at them and wept. My sense of worth had been so tied to successfully leading Bayside, I had been afraid to let it go. That was my breakthrough moment. So I went into 2016 at peace. At church, there was still plenty of murmuring, even among leaders, about whether I should stay or whether I should go. I had had enough. 
So in the first board meeting of 2016, I laid out my position. I said to the board of eight, look, we've all been through a lot. We have all cried, prayed, and spent more than our fair share of sleepless nights worried about our church and how we should move it forward. I want you to know that I'm fine. If Bayside needs to move on without me, I'm okay with that. If you think I am the right person to be leading this church, then I'm willing to keep going. But either way, whatever you decide, I am at peace. No hard feelings, either way. Then I drew this line in the sand. But what I will not do is continue in this seat without this board's support. So I'm going to ask for each one of you to vote tonight, whether you think I should be here or not. And I will respect your decision, but we have got to move on. We cannot continue wavering between two opinions. And we went around the circle and the vote was seven to one that I stay. That leadership decision was a game changer in getting wind in our sails and beginning to move us forward. Chapter 6 The Roller Coaster That Saved Me. Moving into the fall of 2016, my wife and I were still very wounded. We were limping along, holding it together, but honestly, we were running on empty emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. Every autumn, our church does a what we call a church wide small group emphasis that corresponds to small groups with a Sunday morning preaching series. We call them all church series, since everyone in the church is encouraged to participate. That particular year, the series was called Roller Coaster, which was a perfect metaphor for my life and for my ministry over the previous four years. A roller coaster that was with steep drops. As we normally do, my wife and I agreed to host a group. We typically reach out to a few newer families and invite them to join us in a group and it's proven over time to be an effective way to connect newer families and help them connect with others. Our group that year was an absolute godsend. We brought together six couples, a couple of couples from the church that had been there a while, and several new couples. And they ended up connecting in the most incredible way. In a very short time, we were friends. It was the best experience Christy and I had had in a group in years. It was providing friendship, which we desperately needed. It was the antidote for our loneliness and isolation that had been such a dominant experience for us. Finally, we had friends, we had laughter, we had community. The group continued to meet after the six-week study was over and eventually developed into a significant core of the church's leadership community. On a personal level, they had become our best friends. They had made ministry and life fun again. They brought back the feeling of community to our church experience. I say all the time, and I mean it from the, be- from the deepest part of my being, that God used them, used our roller coaster group 
to save us. Without them, I honestly don't know if I'd be at Bayside. I honestly don't know if I'd still be in ministry. When you pray for an answer, God sends a friend. Our roller coaster group in the fall of 2016 really marked the turning point in our church. It's remarkable to think that in the midst of the chaos I was experiencing, God was literally mobilizing people to come and be a part of the new community that would become the core Bayside Church. Friends from South Carolina, Minnesota, Colorado, all moved to this area, relocating, not knowing one another. They were answers to prayer. It was truly remarkable. I saw firsthand that in the midst of my chaos, God was mobilizing the answer to my prayers. That season of my life and what God did in it is living proof that God does rescue. Isn't it true too many of us sometimes quit while God is still mobilizing our help? I almost did. We don't stick with it long enough to see the resources arrive. I almost did. The roller coaster group created new energy and excitement for Christy and for me personally. And it also inspired the lives of broader circles of people around the church. People who had been around a while, they began to notice a difference. The spirit of the church was changing. Visitors started commenting on how contagious the environment was. People who had visited previously during the toxic years returned and commented on how different the spirit of the place felt. The unbiased worshiper could begin to see that new life was happening at Bayside, that change was in the works. We were baptizing more and more people. New people were eager to serve. Mission involvement was taking off. I should say that all along the process, what kept me encouraged and kept me in the game and ever even kept me hanging on during the difficult days was the fact that there was undeniable life change happening. People's lives were being redeemed. People were meeting God. And that reality kept people like me hanging on and kept life happening in the church. The roller coaster group really began to emerge into a positive tipping point for Bayside and for my leadership, and for confidence in me by others. Someone has said it only takes a small percentage to change the direction of an organization. And I found that it, was, it only took a few passionate core people to begin to change the trajectory of the church. What, t- was, what was difficult to do, though, was to get the energy of the new people to influence those who had been through the difficult days of Bayside. It was strange during that time. I felt like I was living in two worlds. The world with the new people who were excited about Bayside, who were seeing exciting things happening, who were experiencing this new wind blowing. They had no recollection of the past, only the excitement that was. That was. And then there was the world of those who'd been through the pain and the trauma of the last several years of Bayside. I found myself on more than one occasion trying to bridge the gap between those two worlds helping the new passionate folks understand the pain that the old guard had gone through, while at the same time trying to help those who'd been here for a long time really see and experience the new wind that was blowing in their church. Over the next several months, I would spend a lot of time sharing stories of what God was doing, often what He was doing behind the scenes. Looking back, this was critical. It kept momentum moving in the right direction, 
telling the stories of life change, of hope, of restoration, of new people coming, of excitement, of plans for the future. But it still wasn't easy. Changing the perspective of those who'd seen many of their friends, even family members, leave the church was hard. It was hard to restore confidence, enough confidence for them to dream again, when so many who they'd known and who had been with them in church for so long were gone. It was hard to convince people who once sat with a row filled with their friends and family members, now set in a pew that was practically empty. But hearing stories, seeing the lives changed, made a difference. Momentum slowly began to shift. I could sense that positive and forward-looking people and that core of people was beginning to grow. A new day and a new life cycle was beginning to be birthed. In the summer of 2017, the time had come to put a stake in the ground and plant a vision for the future, to do less looking back and more looking forward. We needed to capture and mobilize this new energy, this new positivity that was rallying around the church. The time of looking back with remorse and sadness needed to give way to looking forward with joy. Time to stop using all of our energy, time, and attention on rehearsing over and over our regrets and start looking towards what could be. The question now was, how can we give all of these new people and those who've been through these difficult days a new vision and a new opportunity to form the future? Out of that came the idea of Greater 2020, and it would be a game changer. Even the most optimistic of us could not have imagined, could not have dreamed of all that God was about to do. Chapter 7, Greater 2020. In many ways, this would be the worst possible time to propose a capital stewardship campaign. I mean, the church had just lost literally hundreds of people, had lost tens of thousands of dollars in income, and we were going to try a capital stewardship campaign? To the outsider looking in and even to some leaders, this seemed foolish. And it would take some selling to convince the leadership that this was a good idea. But I knew that something had to be done so that the people were given the opportunity to buy in and to show their support for the new vision that was taking place. To me, honestly, the financial goals were secondary to the goal of giving people the chance to participate in the future of Bayside. Now make no mistake, there were some significant mountains that needed to be climbed that the financial stewardship campaign would help. But the most important thing is that we were going to do something together, a shared project, a shared dream, a way that we together as a community could form the future. So our team worked on a plan, a plan that would give people the opportunity to buy in. The plan would appeal to various groups in the congregation. It would appeal to those who had a missional outlook. The first 10% of everything we took in would go outside the walls. It would appeal to those who had a desire to see the church be fiscally sound and conservative. So we would become debt-free. 
and it would appeal to those who wanted to see some improvements in the facilities as we would plan to do some renovations. All three of these were critically important as they met real needs and they also helped to get the church mobilized. Most of all, Greater 2020 would culminate in the year of 2020 and give the opportunity to move our mission forward. And it would move us forward in those three important ways, improve our facilities, reduce our debt, and accelerate our giving outside the walls of the church to missions. So over the next few months, we communicated that vision, the vision of more people becoming more like Jesus, of adding fuel to that mission by eliminating debt, facility renovations, and funding missions. From the pulpit and in small groups and in one-on-one conversations, we shared the opportunity to form the future of Bayside. I tried to make it clear that this campaign wasn't fundamentally about money. It was about our community, about together committing and participating in doing something great for the kingdom of God. I promised that there would be no strong arm tactics. There would be no manipulation. If someone wanted to sit it out, that was fine. But this was how we were going to move the church forward. We did set a few financial goals as markers. Honestly, when we began the process, we thought we would receive maybe $700,000 in pledges. With an annual budget of around a million dollars, and with all that we had been through in the last few years, an additional $700,000 would be remarkable and a big win for our congregation. And it would indefinitely, and it would definitely improve our position facility-wise, financial-wise, and missionally. But what was going to happen was absolutely phenomenal. To appreciate how remarkable the campaign commitments were, you have to kind of understand how these nonprofit campaigns go in church. So often it's anticipated that in a campaign like this, about 80% of your total pledges, your total financial commitments, will come from about 20% of the church. It's the old 80-20 principle. 80% of the pledges come from 20% of the people. That is, the leaders of your church will commit 80% of the total pledges given. The remaining 20% will come from the rest of the church. So to get these pledges from the leaders, there was generally some sort of special event like a dinner or gathering where leaders made their commitments. So we did a very similar event. We had a leader's banquet where about 20% of our congregation met. And they met and had a nice meal and heard the vision of the campaign. And they were given the opportunity to make their financial commitments first before the rest of the congregation did. Out of that leadership dinner, about a little less than $500,000 was pledged, which was amazing. A tremendous start based on the rule of thumb that we should expect another 20% of that to come from the rest of the congregation. So we were really close to that projected 700,000 number if things held true to form. The following week, we opened it up to the rest of the congregation to make their pledges, and we were blown away. Unheard of in capital campaigns. The rest of the church actually out-pledged the leadership of the church. That is, the church pledged an additional $600,000, bringing the total pledges to over $1 million. That was huge. 
The result of these pledges showed several things verifiably. One, it showed that some folks in the leadership were still hesitant to believe in the future. This was understandable, given all the hurt and all the loss they'd experienced. But more importantly, it showed that there was a new contingency of people who were excited and believed in the vision wholeheartedly to the point that they had exceeded the commitments of their leaders. This was objective proof that a new day had dawned at Bayside, at Bayside, but the miracle wasn't over yet. Just in the first two months in the giving phase of the campaign, in January of 2018, a $250,000 gift was given to Greater 2020 that accelerated the campaign. By September of 2018, less than a year into Greater 2020 campaign, we would find ourselves through three of our six phases in the campaign. In 10 months, we were halfway through. (laughs) Our facility, starting with the parking lot and sanctuary, had been dramatically improved. Renovations throughout our bathrooms, in our buildings, new carpet in the kids' areas, new hallways, all while also reducing the mortgage debt by almost $200,000 and simultaneously releasing $60,000 outside the walls of our church into our community, all in 10 months. I remember after the church renovations had been done in October and November of that year, when all that I just mentioned had been done, I walked into the sanctuary before church and the new Three wide screens were on and the new sound system was playing and the recently renovated sanctuary was done and there was music playing. And I just remember breaking down in, in tears of gratitude, in awe of what God had done, that he had moved mountains. What God did in 10 months was nothing short of miraculous. And God was giving us new life. And I was so incredibly thankful. For the first time since I'd been at Bayside, I actually felt like we were winning. People were excited to be on the team. I was excited to be the pastor. The people were excited about the new wind that was blowing. It was truly remarkable. By the time that three-year campaign would come to an end, Bayside Church would be completely debt-free. We would have given away nearly 100,000 additional dollars to missions. We completely renovated the church facility. And we finally said goodbye to all that green carpet. But more than anything, a new chapter had begun. As I look back over those six years, there were a lot of lessons learned. Many of those lessons were learned the hard way. And a few of those lessons I learned just through the gift of perseverance and perspective. In the next chapter, I'd like to share with you some of the lessons that I've learned.